Hello, my name is Jonathan Kaplan. I'm the director of Heart Like a Wheel. I was born in Paris in 1947. My father was Sal Kaplan, a film composer who worked at 20th Century Fox. Among his credits were the film Niagara and The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. My father was blacklisted in 1953. My mother, actress Frances Heflin, then became the breadwinner for the family. You might remember her as Mona Kane on the TV soap opera All My Children. That's Susan Lucci's mother. My uncle was actor Van Heflin, who was a movie star in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and won a Best Supporting Oscar for a movie called Johnny Eager. You might remember him from the movie Shane. I myself started in show business uh, because my father had gotten blacklisted. I became uh, uh, employed as an actor when I was 10 years old in a, a Broadway production of a play by William Inge called The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, which was directed by Elia Kazan. Uh, four years later, I joined Elaine May's improvisational repertory company, spending two seasons off-Broadway at the Martinique Theater doing a production of Rumpelstiltskin for Children, an improvisational comedy for children and adults. I also appeared in Martin Ritt's film, The Molly Maguires. Mercifully, I was cut out of that because I was not a very good actor. I went to the University of Chicago and was expelled uh, for protesting the war in Vietnam. I transferred to NYU Film School in 1968, where my teachers included the wonderful film editor and director Carl Lerner and director Martin Scorsese. At NYU, I won first prize in 1970 at the National Student Film Festival for a 45-minute comedy called Stanley Stanley, and I thought that uh, Hollywood would come calling. Well, instead, I got work as a freelance editor, and I worked on the stage crew at uh, Bill Graham's Fillmore East. It was uh, Marty Scorsese who recommended me to Roger Corman in 1972 to direct uh, Night Call Nurses, the third in his Nurses cycle that he was making for uh, New World Pictures. Uh, Marty was doing Boxcar Bertha for Roger, and um, they were talking about Roger needing a director for Night Call Nurses, and Marty recommended me. So I came home from work from the Fillmore and got a phone call, and it was about uh, 2 in the morning in New York, and it was Roger Corman offering me a job to come to Hollywood and direct a movie. Naturally, I thought it was a practical joke, and I hung up on him. He called me right back and told me that there were people lined up from Los Angeles to London uh, awaiting such a phone call, and did I or did I not uh, want this opportunity? So of course I said yes, and the next day I was in LA, and thus began my uh, directing career. Uh, so I did Night Call Nurses uh, for Roger. It was a big hit in Tallahassee, and I got invited back uh, to do the student teachers for Roger. And then my career progressed from, uh, from uh, sex exploitation to uh, black exploitation or black exploitation. I did The Slams for Roger's brother Gene in 1973. Chuck Turner, uh, a classic of the black exploitation genre for American International Pictures and Larry Gordon in 1974. Then I did a movie called White Lion Fever in 1975 for Columbia, which was a B Western, but with trucks instead of horses. It was an action picture, it was very profitable. And I'm, I was now an action adventure director. 
Uh, I subsequently did a small movie that's one of my favorites called Over the Edge, uh, which is a, made in 1979 about uh, teenagers. Uh, and that was Matt Dillon's first movie. That's probably what it's best known for. It's also Kurt Cobain's favorite movie. You can look that up on the websites. And um, that was a movie that uh, did not fare so well. It didn't get much of a release because it was thought to be way too violent. Uh, eventually, it was released. It made many 10 best lists, and um, I'm very proud of that picture. So that, that gets me to Heart Like a Wheel, which was the next movie I did. And... Heart Like a Wheel began to sort of solidify my reputation, which uh, which uh, has become sort of the, sort of the uh, the female-driven drama director. That's uh, one my specialty now. So I've gone from sex exploitation to black exploitation to action adventure to female-driven drama. Probably my best-known movie is The Accused, uh, for which Jodie Foster won her first Academy Award. The other films I've done are. Heart Like a Wheel, as I've mentioned, Project X, Immediate Family. Uh, that was a movie with Mary Stuart Masterson, Matt Dillon, Glenn Close, and Jimmy Woods about adoption. Love Field, a little scene movie starring Michelle Pfeiffer, and Dennis Haysbert, the president from 24, uh, which was released by a film company, Orion, which happened to go bankrupt at the time it was releasing the picture, so it did not receive a very wide release, though Michelle Pfeiffer did receive an Academy Award nomination for a terrific performance in Love Field. Since then, I've directed the movie Unlawful Entry with Ray Liotta, Kurt Russell, and Madeline Stowe. It's a thriller about a psycho cop in love with Madeline Stowe. Uh, Bad Girls, the Western, Ma Madeline Stowe, Mary Stuart Masterson, Drew Barrymore, and Andy McDowell star in that. And the last feature I did was Broke Down Palace with Claire Danes and Kate Beckinsale. Since then, I've been working as an executive producer and director on ER. It was because of Heart Like a Wheel that I met uh, Anthony Edwards, the star of ER, and it was because of Anthony Edwards that I started to work on ER. So now we're full circle back to Heart Like a Wheel. Now Hoyt Haxton at this moment is singing a song called Built for Comfort. He was going to write an original song for this uh, scene, but uh, he never got around to it. And luckily I had uh, written into the script that he was singing Built for Comfort, which is in fact the song he's singing here. This song, um, I was when I was working at the Fillmore East, uh, a wonderful musician and, uh, and gentleman was uh, performing there and I used to sit uh, when I wasn't working and kind of noodle at the piano, sort of amateur blues progressions. I'm not a very good uh, musician, just like I'm not a very good actor. But I uh, enjoyed just sitting and noodling out these blues progressions. And this gentleman, whose name was B.B. King, came up behind me and uh, patted me on the back and said, uh, We've all, we can all play the blues, son, just some of us can play it better. And um, we started talking, and um, he told me about this song, Built for Comfort, because I'm a large individual, as we like to say. We don't like the word fat. And... Um, and BB's large as well. And um, he said, you know, there's a, there's a song that I like to sing about uh, gentlemen that look like us, and it's called Built for Comfort. And uh, Howlin' Wolf has a wonderful version of it. It was written by Willie Dixon. So that's how I became aware of that song that Hoyt just finished singing. So um, the genesis of Heart Like a Wheel 
I think is the most special uh, that I've ever been involved with, the most special beginnings of a movie I've ever been involved with, because this is the movie that I had the absolute most artistic freedom on of any picture I've ever done. This and Over the Edge. Uh, I would say that uh, on The Accused, I had wonderful producers who protected me as as much as anybody's ever protected me, in fact, more than anyone's ever protected me, within the studio system. So the, the three movies that I would have to say, maybe my best movies were the three movies that I had the most freedom on and the most protection on, uh, and, that, and that would be Heart Like a Wheel, Over the Edge, and The Accused. We're gonna have a little talk. Deal me out, fellas. I wrote uh, Heart Like a Wheel with Ken Friedman, who was a fellow graduate of NYU. Um, we had, how this, how this came about, we had basically pitched the idea of doing a, doc, a um, sort of docudrama life story biography of Shirley Muldowney to these guys at this uh, new film company called Aurora. Uh, the principals of that were a man named Rich Irvine, Tom Baker, and Jim Stewart. Those were the three gentlemen uh, that started that company. They were employees of Disney, but not necessarily in the film uh, part of Disney. And that was Disney in the pre-Eisner uh, era. And they decided to, with a bunch of investors to start a film company and make, uh, I think they were going to make initially four movies. So my friend Ken Friedman uh, had been at Aurora. Uh, they had gone through his agent and, and they they wanted to do a biography of the clown Emmett Kelly. And Ken was talking to him about that, but we started talking and we thought it was interesting that there was a, an actual film company that wanted to make a biography because the genre of biography is very difficult. And not that many people are interested uh, in making biographies. There's been a slew of them recently. Last year, I think the you know the Academy Awards, uh, every year they have to dub it something. Last year they dubbed it like the year of the biography with with um, you know Kinsey and and The Aviator and many more uh, biographies I can't think of right now. I don't think Heart Like a Wood could ever get made now, and certainly not the way it was made then. Uh, basically, these three guys were um, film buffs, but they also happened to be drag racers as kids. So the minute they heard us coming in and talking about Shirley Muldowney, they knew who she was, and of course, they knew about drag racing, and they loved drag racing. Uh, is it generally elitist attitude towards drag racing among people who don't know anything about it, um, which I must confess I had as well before I got to know about it. Uh, you know, you sort of think of drag racers as, you know, one step up from bikers, a bunch of, you know, tattooed degenerates uh, sitting around drunk on beer and going in a straight line for, you know, a quarter of a mile. I mean, how hard can that be? in just in souped up cars. Um, well, anyone who has that attitude, I suggest you just sit in a drag racer in the pits, which you could do, by the way, which you can do. It's the least elitist uh, of uh, sports I've ever seen or entertainment activities I've ever seen. We just buy a pit pass and you can hobnob with the celebrities, with the stars of the sport, and you can talk to the mechanics people that build the cars and i think that's part of its appeal it's a populist sport it's a sport where people c can come and bring their own problems doing their own amateur work on their car and have a professional's advice and um 
uh, th there's a there's an encouragement of uh, collaboration uh, on the amateur and professional level uh, of uh, communication between those levels that does not exist in in most other sports or entertainment ventures. Um, anyway, the the fact that we were pitching this idea about the life story of Shirley McDonald to three people who love drag racing made it you know, quite an easy sell. Um, how I knew about Shirley Muldowney was I had become friendly with a guy named Chuck Roven, Charles Roven, who um, was a, Shirley's manager at the time. And he wanted to become a film producer. And he has since become a film producer of great note. Um, his last, he, he's the producer of the two Scooby-Doo um, uh, extravaganzas that have been very successful for Warner Brothers. Um, he has numerous credits. I think he's working on the Batman prequel now. Uh, Chuck's become an extremely successful producer. And this was his first movie. He was Shirley's manager. So we set about with um, Aurora's support uh, to write the screenplay. And uh, we basically hired um, an assistant because Kenny and I were throwing ideas back and forth and sort of um, reading lines of dialogue to each other, improvising lines of dialogue to each other. And we got someone, this is pre-computers, uh, to take down dictation. So a lot of the dialogue in the, in the movie uh, is dialogue that was sort of improvised between Ken and myself um, as we played out the various scenes. Um, I don't want to overemphasize the screenplay because this was the most collaborative experience of my life in terms of the actual content of the movie. Obviously, we had Shirley Muldowney's input throughout, and this woman is an extraordinary woman, and extraordinary to give her complete and utter trust to two people she didn't know, two young filmmakers um, she, who were prepared to write her life, and she just opened up and told us everything. Um, the, the process went like this. I did not interview Shirley. In fact, I didn't even want to meet her until after Kenny had done uh, extensive interviews with her on tape. I wanted to be able to, to be one step back and objective um, and listen to the interviews and be able to pick out uh, sections that I felt were worth dramatizing and trying to find a structure that would be compelling dramatically on the screen as well as do her justice and tell fairly uh, the events of her life. The problem with a biography uh, is that you have to tell a story over a, a long sweep of time and it by definition becomes episodic uh, because life is episodic. We have one chapter and then another chapter and that's how life is. And too often biographies degenerate into just the high points and low points of a life. That's all you can fit into the, to the two hours you have or hour and hopefully hour and a half. I'm, I find two hours is getting a little long these days for movies and the three hour epics I can't, uh, I can't sit through. I mean, David Lean's three hour epics I can sit through, but other people's I can't. Um, so, you know, you have about an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes to tell a life story. And too often very, you know, very well-intended biographies break down into just the high points and the low points. And 
you don't really get any insight into the characters, nor do you get to root for these characters. You don't get to know them, and so therefore root for them as they go through their life. So the challenge in terms of the writing of Heart Like a Wheel was what to tell, what part of her life to tell, how to organize the material of her life thematically in a way that would be a coherent story um, and still tell, touch on the important moments of her life. Well, basically it became clear as Shirley was telling her story to Kenny on the tape recorder that she told her life story in terms of the relationships with the men in her life. She talked about her, fa her relationship with her father and then her relationship with her first husband, who she's just driving off with in the Corvette there, and her relationship with her, um, her the second love of her life, uh, Connie Kalita, who we haven't met yet, played by Bo Bridges, and her relationship with her son, John, who was played by uh, Anthony Edwards in his oldest incarnation in, uh, in the movie. So, this was the organizing principle that we uh, seized as the best way to tell this story. So here we are at Fonda Speedway. There's an interesting story about this. Uh, shortly after the movie Heart Like a Wheel uh, opened, it was um, it was not well received in terms of the box office. It, 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 the campaign that Fox did for Heart Like a Wheel was an action-adventure campaign. It was a picture of Bonnie Bedelia in a full uh, fire suit, and she looked more like a dominatrix than a race car driver. And the, the picture basically didn't tell uh, the advertising, the imagery of the advertising didn't tell anything about what the movie was really about. So the film uh, got into the New York Film Festival, and I went there and, and showed the the one sheet, the poster from the stage uh, for the movie after the movie screened and it got quite a lot of press and Fox, to their credit, reissued the picture with a different campaign. Uh, anyway, shortly after the New York Film Festival, which the movie created quite a lot of, as they say today, buzz, um, I got a call from Jane Fonda, whose name you see, whose last name you see there behind, uh, that was the great character actor Dick Miller. Um, written on the roof of the house there. It said Fonda. Well, the Fonda New York racetrack was the first place that Shirley Muldowney ever met Don Garlitz, who was the king of drag racing. And it was the first time she ever sat in a professional rail, as they call it, drag racer. So we staged this scene, actually shot um, here in L.A., at the Fonda racetrack, which is what it was called. And some of the research that production designer Jim, Jim Newport showed me, uh, sh the, the, the Fonda racetrack was situated next to the Fonda airstrip. It's a tiny airport in upstate New York. And obviously they wanted the, the drag strip next to the airport for noise abatement reasons. So there was the word Fonda written on the roof of the Fonda airstrip. So Jane Fonda asked to have a meeting with me through our various representatives, and this was at the time that her, um, uh, she was very involved in her workout uh, clubs and, and uh, studios. Uh, 
And uh, it was there was a tremendous amount of security around her then because of all the death threats she was taking because of her stand on the war in Vietnam. And um, I was obviously very sympathetic to her politics. I myself had been, as I told you, kicked out of the University of Chicago for protesting against the war in Vietnam. I wasn't. I didn't think it was the smartest thing in the world to to jump on North Vietnamese um, uh, anti-aircraft guns with a, and and, and uh, sh pretend to shoot those with a grin, but um, I I was sympathetic to her point of view and uh, I obviously thought she was a wonderful actress. I think her performance in Clute was spectacular, and um, I thought she wanted to meet me about a project and that perhaps we would work together. So uh, I. I went to her office, and when she she came in and, and sat down, and and we had a little small talk, and then she asked me, why was it that I used her name behind Bonnie Bedelia in Heart Like a Wheel? And I wasn't quite sure what she was talking about at first, and then I remembered the Fonda racetrack in Fonda, New York, and I said, well, you know, that's where... That's where Shirley Muldowney first got into a professional drag racer, and that's where she met Don Garlitz, who uh, was the king of drag racing, and it was at the Fonda New York racetrack. And um, that was the end of our meeting. So uh, I guess she thought I was exploiting her name or something, uh, uh, in a, you know, or the feminist connotations of her name or something, uh, using them symbolically uh, in the movie. So here we're up to the part of the movie where uh, Bonnie is uh, tucking her son in and she's about to go off on her own and try to get sponsorship so she can uh, race. Now, Bonnie Bedelia would never have been hired to play this part if a studio had been financing the movie. Aurora financed the movie and sold it to Fox after it was done. So the only executives that I had to deal with were the aforementioned executives at Aurora. And they approached the casting of Heart Like a Wheel in a, in a way that would seem logical, but completely unlike things are done in Hollywood. They su suggested that we get the best actress, which we did. Now, uh, we screen tested a, a lot of ladies, uh, and they were all quite wonderful. And um, casting is always very difficult because there's, it's not like there's not a lot of talent. There's so much talent. But Bonnie just seemed to inhabit this role from the first day that she read it. And she understood the dignity of the working class character that she was playing and did not in any way condescend to her. And she also understood the pull of the, her husband and her son because Bonnie at that point had two sons and she was a working actress. So the conflict between career and family was something that she lived every day. And I was um, totally blown away by her first screen test and knew that we had something very special here if she was going to play this part. And thankfully she did. Uh, Bonnie brought more than just her acting chops to this role. She brought her point of view and her talent 
um, her, her, she's a painter, she has a wonderful eye, she's a writer, and she has a spectacular ear. And she really understood how to make Shirley accessible to women uh, in particular and to a wider audience because I didn't have children at the time, Kenny didn't have children at the time, and of some of the um, actions that Shirley Muldowney took in her life um, are quite controversial even today. The, the notion that she would uh, leave her kid to go off to race, to run a drag racer, uh, this is something that, you know, could be viewed as highly unsympathetic, uh, particularly for a mother to do this. And if you meet Shirley and you talk to Shirley, you know that she loves her son and her family more than anything, and it's not uh, a selfish, uh, self-centered, or egomaniacal choice. It's simply that Shirley Muldowney grew up in Schenectady in New York at a time when there were very few options in terms of career for women. And she needed to express herself like all human beings need to express themselves beyond just um, uh, be doing whatever the uh, domestic chores she was doing. Some, some people are very content and there's no pejorative put down meant uh, when you say that someone is just a housewife or just a mother. Um, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people take it that way. But um, in Shirley's case, she needed to do something more. She needed to express herself. She wanted to have a, a family. She wanted to be a good wife. She wanted to be a good mother. But she felt this urge to express herself. And one of the only options she had was driving a car. And she just happened to have this talent and this, these, this fearlessness uh, and this feel for, for the road and the car uh, that made her one of the great drag racers of all time at a time when no, it wasn't even, never even occurred to anyone that there would be a female drag racer. Drag shoes don't have headlights. They don't? All right, we're at the point where uh, Shirley and Connie meet. And as you can tell, I did, I made a very big point of connecting them um, by starting on Connie's funny car, pulling into the pit and uh, panning off and moving in on Shirley. So you, you go from the, from the funny car to Bo to Shirley all in one shot to Bonnie all in one shot, which visually connects them and tells you that these two people together are going to be important. Come on. The use of the of the crane, uh, Tak Fujimoto, the, the director of photography, and Jamie Anderson, the camera operator, both taught me a lot about using the crane on this movie. I hadn't had a crane before, and th those lateral moves that connected the um, funny car and Bo to Shirley, um, it's, it's, it's very poetic, it's very sweeping. It's not um, a dolly, and it's before Steadicam. So it was the use of the crane at eye level, sweeping across 
the set um, that was able to give us that sense uh, of um, connectedness, uh, the sort of pre the precursor of the relationship uh, between Connie and Shirley. The actor playing uh, Jack Muldowney is Leo Rossi, a wonderful character actor uh, who I've worked with a great deal. And it was very important that in the depiction of Jack that we uh, we maintain his dignity uh, and his his uh, love for his son and his love for his wife. Um, and this was Shirley's main concern as we were writing the script. She kept emphasizing over and over again in terms of in terms of her, what she was going to be vigilant about. We could say anything about her. We could say anything about pretty much anyone else. But but her first husband, Jack, she wanted us to be very careful not to depict him in a way that would be undignified or um, harmful to him. Obviously, there's things that he did that he's not proud of, and there's the there's um, as as you'll see as you watch the movie, or as you've already seen if you've seen the movie, uh, their relationship was was a stormy one. But I have to say, one of the things that impressed me the most about Shirley was how generous she was about Jack and wanting to be sure that the movie would not hurt him. Excuse me, Excuse me. I just want to talk to an official. So you saw the, the exchange of looks between um, Jack and his son. Um, this is the kind of filmmaking that um, I like. Uh, you don't need words. You don't need dialogue. Uh, and yet you know exactly what went on there. Um, one of the best things about being a director is you have this wonderful medium at your at your fingertips where you can communicate anything you want with looks with glances with gesture with body language there is so much more than the spoken word and it's very frustrating for me to to see that most movies and most uh, television most film in general tend to be pictures of people talking. And true cinema, I think, is trying to find a way to communicate in other ways other than the spoken word. That's not to say that there shouldn't be dialogue scenes and there have to be dialogue scenes, but there's so many other ways that human beings communicate. And film gives you the license to be able to do that in so many ways, trying to figure out how to communicate to an audience the character's point of view that you want them to be in. How, how to communicate to an audience the subjectivity of a character is the challenge of, of filmmaking. And you, you can put people in the character's mind. You can put them in their heart. You can put them in their eyes. Now, I'm not just talking about a subjective uh, shot from the point of view of the character. Obviously, that's one very effective way to communicate, to show what someone sees when they see it and as they see it. But everything in, in a film, the soundtrack, the music, the production design, the, the, the choice of angle, the choice of lens, um, 
everything should be dictated by the telling of the story. This, what, are the, what do you need to say in this story? What are you trying to say? What, what are you trying to communicate? Where are we in the story? And telling the audience how you want them to feel about the story or letting them feel it on their own. But it's very important to decide whose character you wish them, which character you wish them to identify with, who, who, in whose character's point of view is the audience in. So as many creative ways that you can come up with to communicate the subjectivity of the character, that's filmmaking. That's what I ran into, but look at it from the NHRA point of view. Maybe if you go with me, they'll sign Listen, honey, he said to me that if a woman got in an accident, it could set the whole sport back 10 years. Jack, are you going to help me? If I help you or not, it's not going to matter. So here we have Shirley, the montage basically of Shirley trying to get signatures. And without using uh, direct point, point of view shots from her, it's still shot from her point of view. The, she's in the shot, but we're looking at what she's looking at. So this key moment there where, where she gets Don Garlitz's signature, we get to see him sign it, and we get to see her reaction. And too much of filmmaking, it seems to me lately, has been broken down to too many cuts, too many shots. You t Today you might have a director shooting a close-up of the signature, a close-up of Bonnie's reaction. Now this is a, there, this shot of of Jack and the shot of the sun, the tracking shot moving, that's the first subjective shot, purely subjective shot of the sequence. And that's uh, for, through Shirley Muldani's eyes as she's looking at her husband, as, she, as she's walking past him. So there the camera movement is used to enhance the subjectivity uh, of the character. Shirley's moving, she's looking, the camera's moving, it's looking, and the, the characters are almost looking, Bo Bridges and uh, the, the actor Byron Thames, who's playing his son, are almost looking into the camera. They're looking very close to the side of the lens. So it's what Bonnie's character, what Shirley would see as eye contact between her and her husband and, and her son. Now, a word about the dialogue. The script, while well, I wrote it with Ken Friedman, um, and we both threw out lots of lines of dialogue, we both see us, the screenplay as a blueprint, as a roadmap. We, we both know that it ain't Shakespeare. Uh, Ken is a very, very talented writer, a brilliant structuralist, and has a wonderful ear, but he's a working Hollywood screenwriter and understands that the actors are going to bring their point of view, their ear, and their their own talent to these roles. And in the case of Heart Like a Wheel, I would say a majority of the dialogue was changed not necessarily the meaning of the dialogue, but the specific words were changed by the actors or added to, or in some cases, cut back by the actors. Um, you want 
you want the actors to be comfortable with what they're saying. You want them to be in character. You want them to hit the story points that the dialogue is hitting. But you also want them there to be a naturalism and an ease and a rhythm to what they say. And Ken is the kind of writer who is extremely collaborative with actors. So you, so you get the actors thinking about the dialogue, participating, actually making suggestions. And I think this makes for wonderful dialogue. So here we have an action scene, a race. The challenge to me being, how do you make a drag race? And there's many of them in the movie how you have to make each drag race work on its own. The other challenge, from a production point of view, is how do you get, on a low, low-budget movie, crowds of people? This is before computer graphic imaging, uh, which now permits you to take uh, a dozen people and make them 200,000 people. So I had to uh, storyboard these sequences with the, uh, with the with the an eye towards the economics of the shooting of the scenes, understanding that I was not going to have more than 100, 150 people if we got lucky um, in the stands, and figuring out some way to not have it look like no one was there. The um, the scenes were designed around first the lack of people <laughs> that's why you see there's lots of long lenses being used here uh, to limit uh, how many people you would see and it becomes sort of the style of the scene to be uh, to keep so that the you know it doesn't it's not apparent to the viewer that you're hiding the fact that you don't have a lot of people plus long lenses make people look good there they are portrait lenses Restaurant. Old Mr. Ling likes to break out his smutty fortune cookies. Isn't that true? Oh, yeah. Wait, wait a minute. You what? mean he puts dirty fortunes in the How I prepare a movie, and specifically uh, Heart Like a Wheel, the more pre production time you have, the better a movie you're going to make. Um, first of all, it gives you the chance to plan every scene. And that's not to necessarily say that you are locked into your plan. But if you have the basis from which you're going to be shooting a scene, you can always change it, but you can change it with the confidence that you have a plan so that you're not constantly making it up as you go along. So I basically try to write a visual script for the movie with a storyboard artist. And that way I have plan for every scene that I'm shooting in the movie. I start with the action scenes because that's where the most pre-production information is needed um, to, in order to um, give the uh, people that have to mount these action scenes as much uh, time and also to figure out just the images that you need, just the pieces that you need to communicate the action scenes so that uh, obvious, the obvious danger uh, is limited. You're not. You don't end up doing 
things that you don't need and endangering people for pieces of film that you don't need. So you, you, you look at the script and you look at the location. I like to storyboard at the location. And I, I take a, a viewer with me and I look through the viewer and I try to figure out the choreography of the scene. Uh, and that's basically the, the approach that I take to every um, sequence that I can. If I can get to, to storyboard every scene, I will. Uh, if the pre-production schedule is, is short and I, then I prioritize and I do the, the bigger scenes, the action scenes first and, and so forth. And how many nights did I want you? How many times did I... At this point in the screenplay, there were many scenes uh, from this scene to the next scene that we, we shot some of them and some of them we didn't even shoot. Um, and those that we did shoot, we cut. That, that song uh, is an original of Hoyt's. We just thought it was so beautiful, and the, the uh, transition into the score was so lovely that we really didn't need all these other scenes that had been written. Yes, I'm gonna show you. You did good. Broke the track record. <laughs> I'm so proud of you, Shirley Ann. <laughs> In dreams, my memories ramble out where my heart cannot go. So while I'm watching this scene and watching Bonnie Bedelia's unbelievable reaction to this song being sung, I'm thinking we can go right from here to her father's death. We don't need to go through the movie cliche scenes of he's coughing, he's getting sicker. Oh, your father's not doing well today. Oh, today was a good day. And we went right to this which I think is one of the more eloquent things in the film. And I think it just proves that you give the audience credit for the intelligence that you have and, and they will get it. And this flashback to the beginning of the movie, I think uh, was, uh, Editor uh, Nick Brown's idea. I thought it was a wonderful idea. And so clearly, we're sort of in a classically structural way letting the audience know this that's the end of, of sort of a certain part of Shirley's life. That's the end of the part of her life where she achieved her first success as a drag racer. She received her father's acceptance as... Uh, a professional drag racer and as and his his pride and his love and while there were hints of tension between her and her husband they their family unit was together and thriving so that 
Now we're into the second half. So I would say this is the beginning of Act Two, basically. So once again, the structure of, of this biography is based on the relationships. Um, and it's the continuity of the relationships, the pattern of the relationships that starts to emerge as the film continues. So we, we, we've seen the courtship and the, and the, the, the marriage and um, the family unit that was Jack and Shirley Muldowney and their son John. And now we've seen the fact that Shirley's um, uh, professional drive, her need to drive a car, her need to um, express herself uh, and have, have a career outside of the home while still being a, a, a loving wife and a wonderful mother, how this has created uh, tension in the marriage. Don't you see? Your job's to take care of me and John, and if you concentrate on it, you'll get right out of here. And how basically she's evolved and Jack hasn't. How Jack is, is, is threatened and is unable to except uh, his exceptional wife. You gonna be all right? Yeah, don't worry about me. Don't worry about the car either, because I can tune that in my sleep. You see how uh, Bonnie is able to shift for, and, and, and repress and let, let you know how angry it makes her to be told, your job is taking care of me and John, that's your job. and but how subtly, how she does almost nothing, but she lets you know that she's containing her temper, that she's not going to say anything out of, out of respect for her husband and respect for her son and the situation, that it won't do any good and the fact that he's half drunk uh, and how then she expresses genuine concern for him by saying, are, are you going to be all right? And it's not just, a, are you going to be all right to drive, but it's, are you going to be all right? And that was Bonnie ad-libbing and Leo ad-libbing the uh, response about, I could tune this thing in my sleep. Now you see here, Bo Bridges gives Byron Thames a camera. Now the reason for that was the lack of people in the stands. I gave myself an out by having that little camera. I could explain putting a uh, mat around the frame if I needed to cover empty seats. And I could use the kid's point of view through the camera, sort of with an iris, with a circle at the, big, at the middle, uh, following his mom's car and maybe panning to the other car if I had no crowd, uh, because we never knew who was gonna show up and how many were gonna show up. And I can tell you that every person you see in that frame there, that's every person we had. So I had that option with the camera in case I needed it. I never needed to use it. Um, but, but we'd planned when we storyboarded it to have that camera just in case uh, we needed to get a shot. You'll notice we don't have too many points of view looking down the track from the head of the track to the, to the foot of the track until they get way, way down past the finish line because there ain't nobody there. There'll be no racing tomorrow for the Lady Dragon. 
Just a dead piston. You gotta fight it. And I have to have all these things broken. Yeah, nothing would have been broken if you hadn't tried to run it so late. That's not it. Shirley Muldowney won't lift off and lose a race. That's what it is. I got a burned engine and I don't know what the hell it's gonna cost me because you don't back off. Yeah? Yeah. How do we know that, huh? How do we know it was me? Maybe it was you screwed up. I wasn't tossing back beers all afternoon. See, I'm not perfect. And uh, cars aren't perfect. But Shirley Muldowney, she is perfect. Why don't you have a go at it, Cheryl? Come on. Take a shot at the car. I ain't no. No way. You can tune her in your sleep, right? Do a ride, huh? Shitty luck. You guys had a real... So Bo wanted to be... Extremely friendly here. He wanted to make sure not not to come off in any way like he's putting Jack down. So the key to that was the Fritos. He said, "Do you mind if I snack on some Fritos here?" I said, "Snack on anything you want," and that gave him the the key to sort of being casual and friendly and and gave him something to do so he wasn't just in Leo's face. Just a few more words of wisdom from. Your favorite lousy bum. Hey, sport. You get any good pictures of me yet? That was, that was Bo's ad lib. Hey, sport. You get any good pictures of me? Um, and saying sorry. This is all stuff that he added so that his character would not come off like he was trying to steal Jack Muldowney's wife Shirley from him. I don't appreciate you hitting on my wife. All right, so now we're looking at this from Bonnie's point of view, from Shirley's point of view. See, now, it's I committed to this in the in the storyboarding. I committed to this being subjective from from Shirley's character. So I knew that at this point we were going to have engine noise or something, so she couldn't hear. So the audience is in her point of view. What did those? What did they say? What did these guys say about me? Or, or, or what did my husband say to this guy that I'm obviously attracted to? And, and, and as an audience, it forces you to identify with Shirley here. And now here we have slow motion, Bo and Bonnie walk, Bo is walking normal speed. Everyone in the background is walking twice as fast. And that is purely subjective. They're both looking in the camera. That is clear what's going on there. And you don't need any dialogue. I like the use of the pop songs in, in um, Heart Like a Wheel, the use of the turtles earlier, uh, and the use of the birds here. Um, unfortunately, I think it has become an epidemic of uh, major proportions and a disaster to motion picture making in general, the overuse of uh, popular music. Uh, here, the popular music is used for montage purposes to, to show you passage of time the lyrics are appropriate in commenting upon the passage of time uh, or, or the emotions of the moment. Um, but they don't sit there and carry on under dialogue scenes where the dialogue is fighting the lyrics for your attention. 
uh, we had no music supervisor on Heart Like a Wheel. We we knew what songs we wanted, and um, the economics of the business at that point were were not so extreme that to use a, a, a piece of music costs an arm and a leg. Uh, so you could use popular music to evoke the, the period, to evoke the emotion of the period, um, to, to evoke the passage of time, to comment on the action, uh, but not to be a constant underscoring um, uh, that almost felt like, like, feels like someone's just put a, a radio station on and just plays it from the beginning of the movie to the end. Guess it'll be time for you to break out that uh, winter gear. Not you, right? You got it. I'm going where the weather's warm and the tracks are hot. Come on, the track's a track. That's a whole other thing down south, out west, Gainesville, Orange County. Compared to that, this is minor league. So we obviously had to get, uh, from a writing point of view, we had to get a scene or two between Shirley and Connie without Jack around. But we didn't want to, um, you know, have have Shirley sneaking around behind Jack's back because that's not, in fact, what happened. So we had to use, you know, one of the uh, cheaper devices, which is uh, you start off with the three of them and somebody comes in the scene and says, hey, I got to talk to you. Come over here. And you get the third party out of the scene so that you can have the two people that you want to have the scene have the scene. But see, these are things that you agonize over, but then you finally just surrender. And you say, these are movie conventions that have worked throughout the, the, the decades, so I, I guess we can get away with this. And if you do it quickly, hopefully no one notices. I also think you got a funny car you won't need anymore, right? Jack, how would you feel about... Uh... So this scene was particularly challenging because the young man that plays uh, Jack Muldowney, we shot this scene in um, California, and the, and the laws for using minors in California at night are very strict. Uh, so I had to... This was, this, we were shooting in the summer, so it got dark late, which made it even harder. And you can't shoot with a minor past 10 o'clock at night. So I had to um, shoot all the shots with Byron Thames, who plays John Muldowney in, in this in, in this age at this age. I had to shoot all of his sh all the shots involving him first, um, so to get him off the clock. Um, and basically, we it's always referred to uh, on the call sheet for the movie as you know what time that it's, it says pumpkin. I mean, pumpkin 10 p.m. The character turns into a pumpkin at 10 p.m. So I storyboarded this sequence uh, with um, uh, James Newport, the production designer, and Alan Hoffman, who is a wonderful, wonderful storyboard artist I've worked with many, many times. And by having the storyboards, you know what shots you need, and therefore you know what order to shoot the shots in, uh, what, what order you can shoot them in if you have to do something like get all the shots with the kid before... 10 o'clock at night. Come on, get in the car. Now you get in. I said get in that car. No. Get in the car. 
any shot you see here that does not see the kid was shot with the, after Byron had left, shot after 10. So there, that shot was done before, but the shot of Bonnie watching him was done after. so important that actors underplay in movies. It is so important that you cast actors that understand that less is more when a camera is pointed at your face, that there is something about the camera that will capture what you're feeling if you're just feeling it, that you don't have to indicate how you're feeling, you don't have to force how you're feeling, you don't have to show how you're feeling. You just have to feel how you're feeling, and the camera will see it. And I would have to say that Bonnie Bedelia is the master of that. She is the most amazing actor. She completely understands what the frame is seeing, and she, she asks what lens you got on there. And you tell her, and she knows. She knows that if you have a 75, that that's a, that's a longer lens and that you're tighter on her face and she will do less when there's a 75 on. If you tell her, I've got a 40 on, she, she, she knows that that's a wider lens than, than, than a 75. And she might just inch her performance up, but it, in such a subtle increment that it, it, you can only notice it by studying it. She has a, the ability to watch herself as she's acting. And she will say, oh, oh that was too much. <laughs> Let me do that again. Uh, and most of the time she's right. So I gave her a nickname. Uh, I called her Frederica after Federico Fellini because she thinks, sees, and understands like a filmmaker. And she really gets the difference between stage acting and film acting. And I learned so much from working with her about how much you can get away with doing nothing. And that is what I say. I find myself saying that to actors over and over again. Do less. You don't have to do so much. Do nothing. And if they just trust their feelings, if they just trust their instincts, they just trust their training, trust all the work they've done, let it go and just be. That's the best screen acting. Now this scene, Bonnie wrote, she felt that we had missed a very important point about Shirley Muldowney, that she's leaving her husband and leaving her son with potentially an abusive man and she's not connecting with her son or saying goodbye to him or explaining to him. So we went back in the research and we found 
that Julia did, in fact, make this phone call. But we took a stab at it, uh, Kenny and I writing the dialogue, and Bonnie said, let, let, me, let, let me work on this. And this is her scene. She wrote this scene. John, Mommy loves you so much. Now that I have a daughter, I completely understand. At the time when Bonnie showed me the scene she'd written, I thought, she's leaving him for a while and he's just seen this fight with his mother and his dad and he's asking about who's gonna sign me up at the Y. And I just, I said, Bonnie, are you sure? And she said, this is, trust me, this is how children are. They think specifically, literally about the next thing. If you're not gonna be here, who's gonna sign me up at the Y? And it is so true that it was such an honest line and such an honest response from a child. And I could never have put this in this movie without Bonnie because I wouldn't have thought of it because I had no experience having a kid. And the way she prepared for this scene just just blew me away. She, she uh, came up to the phone booth while the sound guys were fiddling around and planting the microphone and I saw she had something in her hands and she was kind of playing around with the stuff in her hands and it was kind of making noise I could hear it over the headset and I asked her did she want me did she want to have the script supervisor read uh, her son's dialogue to her from the other side of the phone uh, did she want me to do it um, you know we couldn't have Byron there unfortunately because uh, of the, what I was talking about before the, the child labor laws, and it was past 10 o'clock at night. But the phone was hooked up so that she could hear through the phone. I always do that. Whenever I have an actor on a telephone call, I always make sure that that's a real working phone. Uh, and so she asked me to do it. She said, "If you, 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 can, you can be on the phone. Um, and so I'm listening on the phone, and I'm hearing this clicking, 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 these, whatever it is in her hands. So I kind of snuck up behind her and just looked to see what was in her hands. And they were her kids' toys. They were her son's little toys of her son's uh, from when they were babies, you know, toddlers. And I just waited for her. I said, you, you tell me when you're ready. And she nodded and we shot it basically in like three takes, three different sizes. And that was it. And... Um, you know, I have to credit that scene, which I think is one of the most effective scenes in the movie and one of the most pivotal scenes in terms of the audience understanding what a price this woman paid for, what an emotional price she paid for her choices that she made. Um, and, of course, were this a, man, a story about a man, there would be no question that he would leave his family to go off and pursue his career. Uh, his greatness, but this being a woman, and at this at this time of life, at this time of the life of this country, uh, it, it, it was an incredibly radical thing to be doing, and it was very important to make it clear how much this woman paid emotionally for this in terms of her feelings uh, about about abandoning her family and her kid. Um, Shirley made it very clear to us in the research that she never thought Jack would hurt John, that she did not feel 
that uh, no matter how much drinking he was doing, that he would ever be violent to his son. Uh, and in fact, he never was. Um, and so Shirley was very adamant that we make clear that, um, that, that, that John was not in danger. And hopefully we did. So we're, we're into another act here. Uh, the, the, the sequence that happened just a little before where we're, we were on uh, the same road that she first drove a dragster, and, and, and she's now leaving that road, obviously, and she, and she, she imagines seeing um, Jack, young Jack, waving to her, and sort of, it's sort of, this is what people think about as they, as they break up. This is, this is, we're in her head, we're in her memory, we're in her stream of consciousness. She's thinking about the good times with her husband, how they met, how they, how they fell in love. And in, in film, you, don't, you, have, you have to be efficient. You have to come up with imagery that evokes these things. Um, and that's what people, I think, take from movies. I think over the long haul, if you think back on movies you love, you think back on stories that have meant something to you and touched you, what do you remember? Do you remember the intricacies of the plot? Do you remember the first act, second act, third act structure. Do you remember? You remember moments. You remember images. You have an image from that movie, or several images from that movie, uh, or you'll have an association with the score, the music from that movie. Um, so, I think that the most eloquent thing you can do as a filmmaker is to find that one image, that efficient image, that communicates the feelings of the character to the audience. And speaking of images, that rolling uh, engine, which has now been made into a talking rolling engine in a commercial I saw the other day, that rolling engine, that, that's a real engine rolling. There's no computer graphics going on here. Uh, this was wonderful second unit uh, work uh, by, uh, we storyboarded these sequences in this, and the storyboard artist was actually there during the um, sequences. The, the Conrad Palmasano was the second unit director, uh, a man named Nate Long who's no longer with us, who was a wonderful action um, director and producer uh, was involved. And um, all of these action scenes are really, they were beautifully produced because we broke out we only did the shots that we needed to with the principals, with the actors, and there's Anthony Edwards. Um, and we were able to leave this, the most dangerous stuff, which is the most time-consuming stuff, to the second unit. So all that drag racing stuff that you see where it's just where you can't identify the actors and there's not crowds around, it's down at the end of the track and whatever, that was done by the second unit. Hello. Happy birthday. Dad. Yeah. Hey, listen, what'd you think of the gift? The gift? Oh, yeah, um... This sequence um, was the first one with Tony, other than uh, the, the, his brief appearance at the accident. And this shot, this in particular, I'm very proud of because this is what I mean about subjectivity. You're only hearing this. You're you're in Shirley's head. You're hearing Bowbridge's arrival. 
you're watching her react to it, but you're not, you're not cutting to it. You're not seeing it. It's like, it's like, you must experience it the way the lead character experiences it. What am I supposed to do? Leave her at home? Come on in. So, it's one shot. Now, Bonnie goes around the corner. Now we see who all is in the living room. We heard them come in, but that was a moving shot from Shirley's point of view, coming around the corner, and it's totally subjective. That was basically three shots for that sequence, and it totally put you in Shirley Muldowney's point of view. And what I loved was that Bonnie insisted on being warm to Connie Coletta's, to, to uh, Ellen Gears, the wonderful actress who plays Connie Coletta's wife, to his wife, that she, she, she didn't want to just make it, you know, th th that she's being bitchy to his wife. She, she wanted to express genuine warmth to her. So she's conflicted because obviously the, the new love of her life is there with his wife and we all understand what that's about. But she wanted to show who Shirley Mildani really is, which is someone who's empathetic and caring and can identify with this woman's predicament with, with this man, this very difficult man, but this very charismatic man. Well, you're the number one most important thing in my life. All right, Carlos, my man, let's see how fast we can get this turkey together. So you see how here we, we get her mother's point of view uh, when the, when she when she was out there with Connie, so you're able to do the subjectivity. You're able to switch subjectivities. You're able to switch points of view within a sequence very quickly and give a lot of information. We know what the mother thinks about this, and there's not a word of dialogue. So this was a mostly first unit work here because it involved the principles. This was the hardest thing to do because Bonnie is claustrophobic and she, she this just getting in all this gear and then getting inside this car uh, and having it close around her, it, it really did scare her. And so we just did it once. Uh, and then her stunt double did the rest of it. Uh, but Anthony Edwards did everything uh, because he's he loves racing and he, he, uh, he has the need for speed. Let's not forget the, he went on and did Top Gun. So he, he, there was no way he was going to be doubled. And you see there, he's, that's Shirley's point of view from inside the car. He's looking right into the lens. And you don't even need to cut to Shirley. First of all, you can't because it's just a mask anyway. But at this point, you're so locked into her point of view because of the style of the movie making that you just accept it. So that's the second unit shot. Did you see, if you, you can see briefly there, there was no one in the stands, but hopefully you're not looking at that. Here we have the crane, the, the Tak Fujimoto crane shot. I thought that this, um, the idea of pulling all the sound out here, except for the music, uh, was extremely effective. It was, um, it just sort of happened at the mix and it worked so well um, that that's how we mixed it.
this is a stunt man, uh, wonderful stunt man. Uh, the, all these shots are, were second unit. Um, this is extremely dangerous stuff that's going on here, and I would no more presume to direct it. I storyboarded it, but now this this was weeks later in the driveway uh, at the location for what becomes Shirley's house at the end of the movie. Now you see, this is totally subjective. And this image just happened. I mean, I, I, I didn't know what we were gonna end up with once that mask was burned. I was hoping we'd see some eyes and seeing that one eye like that, that just became a haunting image. Okay, so you notice the transitions are fairly important in this movie and, and they're fairly effective. And the reason for that is forethought. You have to think about what's gonna come after what and think about how to make those transitions. Now, sometimes you, you plan a transition and then you get into editing and you end up cutting some scenes and you have to create transitions in the editing. But for these important time passages, we're telling a biography here, and it's very important that the audience know time and place because it's gonna be constantly jumping around. Uh, so in this case, it's constantly advancing uh, but there are some flashbacks, like the flashback that I talked about uh, to uh, in, in uh, Shirley's memory to her husband waving at the end of Depot Road uh, when she's leaving him, her memory of their races. Oh, she's B-171. It's right down the hall on your right. Okay. So that actress there that plays the nurse, that's my sister. That's Nora Heflin. She's a wonderful actress. The guy that looked at her there with the beard and the... Uh, Crutches, he was the production manager, and he's now a, um, a very well thought of and excellent Hollywood producer named Arnie Schmidt. Um, now, if you watch the flowers here, you'll have some fun because they kind of bounce around. They, the continuity on the flowers got a little sloppy. I got uh, caught in some rough weather, otherwise I would have been here sooner. Sorry about that damn blower. So you notice we started this scene with the uh, the uh, Billie Jean King uh, tennis match um, where she beat uh, that guy whose name I can't even remember. He's become uh, uh, so obscure. But, uh, you know, on paper, it may seem heavy-handed. You know, here's a story about a f female drag racer. She's a female athlete. Uh, and here's Billie Jean King. Uh, beating a man, and so you you don't want to belabor that. Now that that young lady that's stretching out there, Carlos's little sister, that was the casting director, uh, one of the casting directors of Heart Like a Wheel. Her name is Julie Selzer. Shirley, come on. You ever seen her? Hey, I'm talking bow wow, man. Now he 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 talks about her uh, as being a bow wow, whereas in fact she's quite the opposite. Um, Now you see, right here, there was dialogue written there. And Bonnie said, I, I think I can do this without the words. I think, you know, she had lines like, stay, Connie, I need you to stay with me, or something like that. You got that stuff from the pharmacy. Hey. And sure enough, she don't need the words. You need anything else? No, honey, thanks. 
Now, it was a perfect choice to have John Muldani wearing a Doris T-shirt. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> I look like shit, and yep, that was improvised. Bonnie said I look like shit, and Bo said yep, and it was, so we shot it. Anthony Edwards wrote this scene. And uh, she's in the hospital. Yeah, well, she, she burned her arm and around her eyes pretty bad, but Doc says she's going to be all right. It's a damn funny car. She can't handle it, No, 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 Dad. Look, it, it wasn't her fault or anything like that. She, we were trying this new goddamn blower, and it, and it just went off like a bomb, just like that, really. This guy's 19 years old. He comes to the set, and he says, you know, I really think that he would want to connect with his dad after an accident like this, and he'd want to try to, you know, when... Kids are, when their parents are divorced, they, they, they constantly want to get them back together. And I really feel like he would try to reach out to his dad. And so he wrote that scene. And you notice I didn't shoot the other side of it. I just shot Tony's side of it. So you're in John Muldowney's point of view only. You're hearing what he's hearing. You're not seeing what he's imagining, his father on the phone, and you're not intercutting back and forth two sides of a phone call. You're in his subjective experience. And I, I just found that entire sequence to be, uh, I'm very proud of that sequence. It's so efficient. It's, it's, so, um, it's so simple, and yet there's a hell of a lot going on. And what I was saying before about the Doors t-shirt is, that this was a, a more innocent time in America and in movie making because you could actually just decide what t-shirt the character might be wearing and put it on them and not have to worry about these mega conglomerates going to war with each other and not having to get legal clearance upon legal clearance upon legal clearance for everything that's in the frame. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you asked John Muldowney, like, what were you listening to at the time? What music were you listening to? You know, what were you, and he's, you know, oh, the Doors, you know, I had a Doors t-shirt I really love. Boom, you get the Doors t-shirt, you put it on, you're, you're in character, and it's an accurate portrayal of the character. These days, you'd have to get release upon release, and, and, and there would be uh, constant negotiations, and by the time you got permission, if you got permission, the movie would have been released two years ago. Spectator here, Shirley Cha-Cha Muldowney, her arm bandaged, but looking surprisingly well, considering your recent funny car fire. How are you feeling? So the gentleman that's uh, interviewing Shirley here is the real, is one of the real announcers who works uh, the drag taste, the drag strip um, circuit, and he does he does the narrations for their films, and he does the commentary, and he does this kind of walk around the pits interview which is broadcast to uh, uh, to everyone at the race. Steve Evans. Shirley is uh, rushing off to catch up with Connie Kalita who just swarmed away from here. And that dialogue is all improvised. There's no reason to, you don't have to write for these guys. These guys ad lib it all day long. So this gentleman here in the blue jacket, the African American gentleman, uh, that's Bob Miner his name is. He is a fantastic stuntman and stunt coordinator. There he is. And I've worked with him on many, many movies. I met him on The Slams, which was my third movie. He was Jim Brown's double. And um, I have to say, he's one of the, 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 the most gifted 
people I've worked with in this business and the safest, one of the safest. And he's quite a good actor. He was in um, Norma Ray. He had Marty Ritt hired him as an actor, uh, and he was he was quite wonderful in that. He's he's a terrific talent. I'm becoming my ass. How long? Now here you have the uh, low budget showing. I'll tell you what the hell this is. This is television. That's all I give a shit about. He's storming out of what what is a you know basically a meeting with the bigwigs of of uh, the racing association and uh we just couldn't afford we were running out of money and we just couldn't afford to have the conference room and uh the extras who would be there and we just had to we figured here's a way to save some money we'll just um you know have him come out the door and don't see in the room so the guy there at the bar uh, was the prop master, Michael Milgram, wonderful prop master, legendary Hollywood prop master. Uh, and uh, he's also uh, uh, a member of SAG, so he's, he's done a lot of bit parts. So I got uh, Michael to come over and do that uh, that ad lib at the, uh, just because Bo wanted to interact with someone. So it, it was better to have, when he says, what you looking at, it was better to have someone respond. A lot of times, to save money, you'll, you'll get the situation where a main character will talk to someone and they won't answer because you're saving money. You're having an extra do it and not an actor, so you don't have to pay the actor, pay the salary. Uh, and it's pretty phony. You can spot it. And uh, I, I, I would rather, if I can, I'll pay for it out of my own pocket to have a human being actually answer someone. Me? A crew chief? Is that what you're saying? Honey, I'm talking about keeping you in racing, honey. I'm talking about keeping us together. Keeping us going. Look, I'll tell you what. Bo really uh, is a wonderful actor, and he's so much fun to work with. And he's such a professional. Now, there's Dick Miller. That's the actor that I pointed out earlier, the character actor who was who was uh, uh, waving the flag at the, at the early drag races. Unfortunately, there's a whole section of the movie that had to get cut out just for time um, where Dick, as this character, the successful businessman, he backs Shirley. He becomes her sponsor. Shirley Maldani, you know what I think? I think top fuel, why the hell not? I'm going to be the best damn crew chief, and you're going to be the best damn driver, and I'm going to make you top fuel champion of the whole damn world. Connie Coletta's going to ram Chacha Maldani right up their asses. Coletta, Mickey White. That is, if you still want me. So Bo is able to carry off this this very difficult role of Co Connie Coletta, the charming swine. I mean, we know that he's two-timing uh, every woman that he's with. We know that he's um, sort of a force of nature, and uh, that he, that he's he's quite self-centered. And now that is Bonnie's son, who just said "cha cha smile." Um, and that was the shot that Bonnie was most concerned with in the movie. As, as I was cutting the movie, she, she kept asking if her son was still in the movie. Is, is, now that is, the, the footage you're seeing here was shot at the, uh, that was documentary footage shot at the real uh, uh, nationals uh, at uh, um, Indianapolis, the drag, race, drag racing international. This was shot at the winter nationals in Pomona. Uh, so we, we were, we, as Shirley's career became 
more and more uh, professional and the crowds became bigger and so forth, we were able to use, and, she, and we came more into the modern era uh, with the, the shape of the cars and, and the, the dress and the, the whole period getting closer to when we were actually shooting the movie, we were able to use uh, selective uh, documentary footage. So the crowd problem became uh, not as big an issue because we were able to shoot establishing shots with 85,000 people uh, at a real event. I don't think you can handle it. There you have it. There's only one place this argument's going to be settled on the racetrack. Shirley, Shirley, can I have your autograph? Sure. Good luck, Donald. Good luck, you too, Donald. Now, this is um, Paul Bartel, a, a fellow director, uh, a fellow graduate of the Roger Corman Postgraduate School of uh, uh, Fundamental Filmmaking, of uh, filmmaking on a shoestring. A uh, wonderful, wonderful guy who was a, uh, quite a, a sought-after comedic actor as well as uh, being a director. Uh, his Probably his most famous film was Eating Raul, which if you haven't seen, you must rent and see. It's a riot. Ah, yes. There we are. This is the uh, Spring Nationals. That's me racing. This is basically an ad-lib scene. I love beating Donald. He's such a bad loser. That was my crew, my son John. We had looked at Shirley's many TV appearances, and Bonnie had seen them, so she knew the kind of thing that she would be saying. And that dish is, Cha-Cha? Excuse me, it's Shirley. It's just Shirley Muldown. That's right, Cha-Cha. Lasagna. We start with a layer of the pasta, and sometimes the pasta tends to stick together a little bit. Oh, yes, bit. lasagna does that. Especially, you know, there's a good trick for that. If you put a little oil in the water when you're cooking it, it the um, pasta won't stick together as much. Total ad lib. <laughs> You just point two cameras at these people and let them go. That scene went on and on and on. It was very well edited by Nick Brown. Uh, but I knew that we'd get something wonderful if we just let Paul and, and Bonnie go at it in character. Hello. Am I speaking to Shirley? Yes. I know Connie's with you. I think it's only honest that I talk to you. So here... The, the low budget nature of the film helps you be creative and, and creates parameters which puts you into parameters which force you to be creative. I basically had to get this done very quickly. Uh, we were running out of uh, uh, time on this day. Uh, we ha and we had this location only for a day and had a lot to do with it. So I had to basically do this in one shot and get it done. And that's what gave rise to, you know, using having his shadow on the wall and it's, it's much more creative and much more visually interesting than if I'd had the time to cut to him in the bathroom, cut back to her on the phone, cut closer, cut closer to him. This way it's all in one shot. It's very efficient. And, um, and, and it, it's an image, the image of him, his shadow on the wall and her sitting there on the phone and him dancing in like a chicken uh, is memorable. So that's the nurse from the hospital. 
I don't know if you knew that yet at this point in the scene, but we tried to, we hoped that the audience would be a little bit ahead of us and recognize her at some point. That's obviously why we set her up in the hall um, when Bo when Bo asked where was Shirley Muldowney's room. Right. You're a nurse, right? So Bonnie has a huge transition to make here because she, she's she's got to understand what he's been up to. You were just working for him. We've been together seven years. But we have a special. I know, he's told me. I'm the number one most important thing in his life. So that's what he's told her, too. We've heard him tell that to Shirley. So here's the transition. She has to process all this and then say, got a cigarette. Basically, she's got to forgive this woman. She's furious at her. She's furious at herself. But she has to be Shirley Muldowney, which one of the, which one of the things that makes Shirley Muldowney so interesting and likable as a person is that she's so bright that she gets that this woman has been victimized by by his charisma and his lies the the way she's been victimized and that to to take it out on her would be to blame basically the victim and that's all communicated in that camera move in the push into Bonnie and the amount of time she takes with that and by just asking for a cigarette and there he goes <laughs> he's saying it again and by just asking for a cigarette she expresses her basic solidarity with this woman. And there was more dialogue written there. In fact, we did takes with more dialogue. And Bonnie said, you know, I think I can get there without it. I think I can get there. Let me say these words. Let me say them a couple times, and then let me try one without them. And I said, yeah, well, I'm going to help you because I'm going to push in on you. So, you know, take. she said, it's going to take me a long time to say a cigarette. Don't get impatient. So, Bonnie, take as long as you want. And that's screen acting. That's giving the audience credit for being able to understand what the character is thinking, what they're feeling, and what changes they're going through without dictating it to them, without spelling it out. Now here we have a clever, um, low-budget solution to a problem of not having enough people, not having a big enough uh, arena for, to, for what would really happen in this scene, which is she was speaking at a banquet with, you know, a thousand or so people. But by doing this outside at the, at the TV truck, um, where, the, where the TV feed is, uh, we had two video cameras working inside, so you get multiple images, and you get this tie-in here where Bonnie, you, now you see the dais from sort of the backstage area, and now she walks, and that was real time. She walked off of the podium, off out of the video cameras, and into the film frame, which is panning off the TV truck there, panned off the TV truck 
and settled in on her. For keeping the faith through a lot of really hard times. So here, how much more subjective can we be? We're, we're with her backstage watching this stuff on this TV truck. She's all alone. We just hear it and watch her react to it. And we get it. And then just as when we first met these two, when she first met Connie Coletta, I made sure to join them together in a very long tracking shot there I join them together in a dissolve because we're coming up on a significant moment in their relationship. This is basically the end of their relationship. I'm not talking pizza, I'm talking escargot at Shea Phillips. I don't want to go anywhere with you. Okay, okay. I was hoping to do this by candlelight in some fancy restaurant, but if this is the way you want it, Merry Christmas. So I'm sure you noticed the um, high angle looking down her street, uh, the snow, and it's it's obviously a mat shot. Uh, you know, one of the problems with the low budget movie is when you have to do something like snow in Southern California, you you're forced to do low budget opticals. Uh, obviously, that technology has revolutionized since we made this movie, but I sort of decided this film needed that shot, um, even though it was a little hokey. Uh, it needed the feel, it looks a little bit like animation. It looks a little bit like, you know, Neverland, Disney, not Neverland, but uh, Snowland. Um, but I just felt like the, it, we needed to, t to have that, that breath to step back a little bit. Uh, because I knew how close the rest of the scenes were gonna play. Oh, I've been lousy to you. But this, this crazy situation of mine, it's gonna change, you know that, it's gonna change. Look, I'm expecting a, a telephone interview in a little while, it's uh, the radio, and uh, I'm making an announcement. I've decided to race the car without you, Connie. Ron and John are gonna handle the car. I'm gonna handle the money. Just Ron and John? So she mentions this character, Ron, who, uh, this is one of the things that you have to do when you do a biography, which is you have to, there's some characters that just don't get their fair share of the narrative. Um, Shirley Maldami is actually married to Ron, and he's the most important uh, man in her life right now, except for her son, John, and he's an important character in the biography of Shirley Maldami. He was her crew chief, her mechanic, and uh, they have a wonderful relationship, and he's a wonderful guy, and you know, you you just have to sort of dramatically shape the material and some things just you just don't have the time to tell all right so she's expecting a phone interview she gets a call from jack and now we cut to the other side he's great he works for me full time now you know full time huh yeah well you must be doing good then finally making a big money how good is this guy this guy can act. He's simple, he's straightforward. He has dignity as a character. He's not afraid to commit to the guy's dark side. 
I'm not running gas anymore, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, listen, Cheryl, um... The beauty of this is you get to see her emotion and feel her emotion, but she's concealing it from him. So it's important to see his side of the conversation because it's more storytelling information. First of all, you see how he's aged. You see what his situation is. Um, but, but also you get to see what he's missing about her, that he doesn't pick up on how uh, touched she is by this phone call. And what, what starts out, I think this is wonderfully written, Kenny wrote this, the, the notion that he, you think it's a sentimental call and that he's just calling out of the goodness of his heart, just out of because he misses her and he just wants to wish her all the best and then he's actually asking for money. Merry Christmas, Jack. Have a nice interview, all right, Cheryl? Sure. So here we have the biography of this woman, and it's she's going to be in almost every scene, and it's it's her life story, and yet it has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end that extends beyond her birth, her life, her death. I mean, it has to be, there has to be emotion in the movie, and it has to, the audience has to have emotional investment in the movie in order to be touched by it, in order to be touched by this relation, these relationships. Uh, I'll return to that in a minute. Uh, this is the radio interview that was ad-libbed between uh, an actor named Bob Ridgely who has been an, uh, an interviewer, uh, had been, he's no longer with us, Bob. Uh, he'd been a sports talk guy and, and a news guy and also a wonderful actor. He's in a lot of Jonathan Demme's movies. And we gave him basically the questions, told him to put them in his own words, and told I told Bonnie just, you know, be Shirley and, and do this interview. And she knew that she had to make this announcement, and that was it. Uh, the rest, it's, it's all ad-libbed. And you notice it's one shot here. And we did like a couple of takes, and then I did it tighter, uh, same thing. And, you know, it, it's a ballsy call here because you, you're committing to this. There's, there's nothing to cut away to, to shorten it uh, or to, you know, to change it. Uh, you have to commit to a section of it. Uh, but I had such confidence in Bonnie and I thought the situation was so subjective, putting the audience in the position of, of, of being only on this one end of this call and experiencing this guy who's razzmatazzing her and just abba dabba dabba. And, you know, I don't know, starts off, I don't know shit about what you do for a living, but, you know, I'm going to carry, carry me, will you? And here we go, ready and boom. So that you get basically, you know, exactly the experience that the lead character had the audience is having as she's having it. Uh, uh, Bob, if you think it's so easy to handle one of these little cars putting out 2,500 horses at 250 miles an hour and a force of three Gs, maybe you'd like to come down to the track, give it a whirl sometime? Now, that is something that Shirley Muldowney actually said in an interview, and Bonnie remembered it verbatim and just said it, and said it with the exact attitude. So there's a cut. That's the first cut as Bonnie sits down. It's a tricky cut because basically the camera's on the same axis uh, just tighter as the wide shot. And that's not, I, I don't advise that. Um, you know, usually it's a good idea to change the angle when you go in tighter uh, because you, you, 
especially if you have nothing to cut to, you're going to have to cut from what from Shirley to Shirley in this case. Uh, but it works. We were able to find a place because I wanted to be close to Bonnie's face for the end of this, um, and I wanted to be able to you know make the cut in a in a way that you didn't notice it, and hopefully you don't. Shirley, you sound like one lady who knows her way around the track. But just one last question. When you look back over your whole career, do you have any regrets? Yes, I do, but only one. That my father couldn't live to see me champion. That, those two lines were the only scripted lines. I said, make sure the last thing you ask her is about her regrets. And we knew what Shirley's answer was because she that was her answer she gave many, many times. Having done some radio interviews in my illustrious uh, career as the uh, hardest working, most prolific, best known director you've never heard of, um, that's just like what doing radio interviews is like. You're on, you're introduced, there's this phony intimacy, you know, you, the, like you pretend like you know each other. You do this, the, it's so fast, you can't believe it. There's all this, and then suddenly it's over and you're sitting there by yourself and you go, what in the hell was that? So I hopefully captured some of that. All right, so here we, here we have the big fight scene, which you notice we've gone to handheld camera here because it, it creates, obviously, a certain uh, immediacy and a, a, cer a, a certain energy. We're home driving! Me! Shirley, you're a great chauffeur, but that just doesn't get it done. Of course, this is shot in the backyard in August in Southern California, so there's, there's potato flakes all over the ground and hanging on the fence back there. Now I'm supposed to eat shit, right? Is that it? You're breaking my heart. Why don't you go cry about it to one of those little chickies you've been screwing? The one thing I always miss in shooting here in Los Angeles um, when you're shooting winter is not seeing people's breath and... Uh, here comes Tony. On ER, uh, we go back to Chicago four times a year and shoot location footage there. And the winter stuff, it's it just, it's wonderful because everybody's freezing and you can see everyone's breath and it looks cold. And uh, it's hard to intercut that with the winter stuff that we shoot here. Uh, you know, it's a dead giveaway. The lack of breath. So one thing about fight sequences that I've learned over the years, I've done many, many of them, is you don't need to do a whole lot of takes. You know, you, 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 you really need to just, you need to get a whole lot of shots, but you don't need to do a whole lot of takes of the same shot. Uh, and that's the most efficient way to shoot a fight, is get as, much, as many angles as you can that work for the, for the stunts, for the punches and so forth. Punches are better delivered behind the head of the person getting punched then you don't see the space between the fist and the chin. You don't want to shoot punches in profile because then you can see the miss. Um, but, you know, if you, get, if you get it once, you got it. You only need to get it once in film. You only need to get every setup. You just need to get it once and you have it. Now, obviously, you shoot protection and sometimes you try different things and so forth. But it's a very important principle to keep in mind, whether you're shooting a big-budget movie or a low-budget movie. If you've got it, you've got it. Uh, sure, there may be technical problems, but, you know, 
it's very important not to waste everyone's energy and time and resources doing it over and over and over again for no reason. So that crane shot that introduced this final race, that was at a real race at Orange County Racetrack. Uh, um, and that there are no people painted in there. That was, you know, 100,000 people for that event. She takes the crowd here, surely forever silent all those critics who still think it takes a man So this scene was shot after we finished the picture. Um, we knew we needed to see Shirley win her last event. And it was very important uh, that we um, shoot that event at the real race. Because now here's a recall. You remember the shot where people were walking in fast motion and the shots in slow motion, same thing there. That's a that's a that's a callback to when they were looking at each other at the uh, at the racetrack when he was driving a funny car. Now he's moved up to top fuel, uh, what they call a rail, and so is she. Anyway, to get shots like this, we needed to shoot this at the real race. So we had to wait for the real race. So we were able to cut the movie together, and no pretty much exactly what we needed to shoot here for the end of the of the movie. This may well be the most exciting top fuel final in the history of this sport. It's a real uh, balance that you have to strike between the character story, the intimate story, the story of Shirley and uh, her relationships and her life, and the spectacle of drag racing. And um, I, wa I really wanted to satisfy the drag racing fans out there. I wanted them to come to the movie, and I wanted them to love the movie, and I wanted them to get enough drag racing so that they felt it had done their sport justice. But I really felt that drag racing at a certain point becomes a metaphor for just Shirley's need to do something that, that uh, expressed her creativity, her talent, her drive, her, her, uh, her courage, her individuality, and um, something that left her mark, that let, let people know she was here. <laughs> So the key to the end of the movie is what I was talking about when I interrupted myself during the radio interview. In order to structure a biography so that you have an emotional investment in it and you will be touched by it and you will be touched by the life that you're watching, it is important that there be some kind of structure to the, to the relationships, that there be some kind of beginning, middle, and end. You find some kind of beginning, middle, and an end within a life to, in order to give it a classic structure, in order to give it, to make it accessible uh, as drama. And what I found in this story was the relationship between Shirley and her first husband, Jack. I felt that that, that was the real 
beginning, middle, and end of this movie was the story of two young people who fell madly in love, had all the idealism, all the naivete, all the sweetness of youth, all the dreams and hopes, and shot it in a kind of magical way with them dancing, uh, the, the transition where they're sort of dancing against the sky and then they, they, it reveals the racetrack behind them and where he shows her the gas station he's going to build and it's, that was all done in one shot, one long pullback and it's all very dreamlike, it's all very, it's a fantasy, it's all very um, hopeful and, and beautiful and that's the beginning of that relationship and then the relationship deteriorates to where they break up and he's He's threatened by her and he hits her. And then this is the resolution. The fact that he roots for her, that he's somehow come to um, an understanding of who she is and what she had to do. And he loves her, he still loves her. She still loves him. They can't be together, but it's seeing Jack Muldowney do that thumbs up at the end there that I think is gives you the feeling of um, finality to this that it's the, it's the it's the end of the story um, and it's a it's a bittersweet ending it's an emotional ending but it's also a happy ending because he, Jack is has resolved his demons and he's done the right thing he's rooting for this extraordinary woman that he was married to he loves her he loves his kid and she's achieved success that nobody could have dreamed she could have achieved and she's happy and fulfilled and um she's been a great mom she's got a great kid so we have a a happy ending which god knows hollywood always wants um but it's not a hokey phony happy ending it's a genuine kind of understated happy ending um, about this this family who we sort of experienced the beginning, middle, and, and end of this family. And I think that's the secret to the structure of the movie and probably the secret to why it touches people uh, as much as it does because of all the movies I've ever made, this is, seems to be the movie that sticks with people the most. Uh, I've had, obviously, more conversations in my life about The Accused because it got a wider distribution. And with Jody winning the Academy Award, it was obviously a very high-profile movie and clearly about something very important. And of all the movies I've made, I'd say that um, The Accused is the one movie that might have actually changed the perception of um, what that movie was about. And, and maybe, I don't think movies can really create too much change uh, socially, but I think the accused did alter people's perception uh, about rape and gang rape and, and who's the victim and, and who's the perpetrator and, and changed people's point of view. So obviously I have more conversations in my life uh, from people about, about the accused, but I would say that the people who love Heart Like a Wheel love Heart Like a Wheel. And it, it, I'm very gratified that people in that sport and around that sport and people who didn't know anything about that sport are touched by this movie because I think the movie is about ordinary people. It's about plain everyday people who, you know, work for a living and 
you know, fix up their trucks and fix up their cars and go to the races on the weekend. And it's about working people. Um, and it treats them with dignity and it tells a story um, that's a true story about a woman who's incredibly courageous, um, played by an actress who is without a doubt one of the greatest actors of all time and uh, one of Amer America's great, great treasures. Uh, I think, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of actors and I'm not putting any of them down, but I have to say that Bonnie Bedelia is the, the most amazing talent and um, it was it was just one of the great experiences of my professional life to be able to work with her. And that's Heart Like a Will. Please.